Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Tell Me About Your Father. It's a new podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique. This podcast premieres today, Wednesday, April 8th, 2020. If you have ever had a father of any description, Tell Me About Your Father has something for you. Listen to intimate interviews with a range of fascinating and influential people as they reveal details of their relationship with the first man they ever knew. They will also tell you how much they didn't know about him and the impact that he's had on their lives. The premiere season of Tell Me About Your Father features interviews with actor and author Barbara Feldon of Get Smart fame, the one from the mid-60s, pornographer Jake Jackson, author Sohaila Abdullali, and Paper Magazine editorial director Mickey Boardman. You'll also find episodes that examine famous fathers in pop culture, literature, television, and beyond. Tell Me About Your Father is inspired by Aaron Hosier's 2019 memoir, Don't Let Me Down. It's now available in paperback. Tell Me About Your Father is created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Matthew Philp, and Elizabeth Thompson, all writers who each have their own father stories to tell. Four out of five listeners will get choked up during three or four of the episodes. Will it be this one? Tell Me About Your Father aims to unpack all facets of the father. The loving, the ambivalent, the supportive, the fiscally irresponsible, the obscenely wealthy, the dead and the living, the fathers who have built us up, and the dads who have let us down. Think free therapy, but funnier and just as deep. Listen to the premiere season, seven episodes in total of Tell Me About Your Father on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can also find all episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com and additional content on Instagram. The handle there is at tellmeaboutyourfather. Is your dad having trouble taking the coronavirus seriously? These crazy kids have an anonymous hotline, one 888 318-DADS 1-888-318-DADS You call it, leave a message, tell a story about your dad and they'll share it on Instagram or leave your name and number and maybe they'll ask you about your father Tell Me About Your Father a brand new podcast, season one now available, go get it Alright My wife is talking about Hello. How are you? I'm Brad Listy. This is the Other People Show. It's the Other People Podcast, and I am in Los Angeles. I hope you're well out there. I hope you're taking good care of yourselves. 
Hope you're taking good care of uh, friends and neighbors and elders as much as you can. I know we got to practice physical distancing, so it makes it a little bit difficult to do stuff. But, you know, not doing stuff is a way to do stuff. You know what I'm saying? So I hope you're, I hope you're okay. I have Chrissy Van Meter on the program today. She has a debut novel out on Algonquin Books. It has been earning rave reviews. It is called Creatures, and I had such a good time talking with her a while back. This was pre-corona. It was, you know, before corona. It was B.C., so we were here in person, we were talking, and it was just a, a delight. So you're going to hear my conversation with Chrissy Van Meter in just a second. Her debut novel, once again, is called Creatures. All right, today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp Online Counseling. Is there something out there that's interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. It can help. You can get connected with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's very convenient. You can get help on your own time, at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions. Perfect in the age of coronavirus. Plus, you can also chat and text with your therapist. Now, these are licensed professional counselors who are specialized in things like depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, LGBTQ matters, grief, family conflicts, you name it. If you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, know that you can request a new one at any time at no additional cost. There are 3,000 licensed U.S. therapists across all 50 states. This service is available worldwide. And remember, there are four communication modes, text, chat, phone, and video. Start communicating with a the therapist in under 24 hours. It, uh, it's available on desktop, mobile web, Android, and iOS apps. Schedule video and phone sessions, generally weekly, unless your therapist schedules more, and get some help. There is financial aid available for those who qualify. This is secure, convenient, professional, and affordable. It is not a crisis line. And best of all, guess what? It's a truly affordable option. Other people with Brad Listy listeners get 10% off your first month with the discount code OTHERPEOPLE. Again, that discount code is OTHERPEOPLE, OTHERPPL. You got it? Get started. Go to betterhelp.com slash other PPL. Fill out a questionnaire, help them assess your needs, and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash other PPL. And don't forget that offer code, other PPL. All right? So before we get started with Chrissy Van Meter, I do have some mail. A listener named Maria says, hey, Brad, I hope you're doing well amidst all the chaos. I was just wondering if you're doing anything specific since you started to self-quarantine to keep a routine or have time for yourself. I'm sure that's kind of a joke. I know you have kids. Do you have any advice as to how to deal with this? I'm really missing out my, on my old routine. I don't know how to start a new one. I miss my commute time to listen to podcasts, and I miss having alone time. Do you have any thoughts? Stay safe. Maria. Well, Maria, I feel kind of bad. I have this garage where I can go hide, which is a luxury. It's like a detached uh, garage from my house, so it's kind of its own building. I go out here, and I'm able to do work, and I'm trying to just work uh, because i got to make money. But it's hard right now. I know it's really hard for a lot of us, so I'm just trying to stay busy. I come out to the garage and do that. I think if you don't have something like a garage to go hide in, then you got to try to find time to go for a walk or go for a bike ride. 
That's how I stay sane. I've been doing a yoga in my garage or I've been riding my bike all over Los Angeles. It's never been a better time to ride a bike. I keep telling people traffic is uh, diminished. Everybody's staying home. It's pretty safe as far as activities go because you're moving. Like, I don't think you can get infected while you're pedaling. Can you? I mean, I guess if somebody, like, rode by you on another bike and sneezed on you, maybe. (coughs) But otherwise, I think you're good. So that's what I would do. Make time to go for a walk. Make time to uh, ride a bike. Get up early if you have to. Like, this is the thing about uh, personal time. I totally get it, Um, you, you know. You sort of have to fight for it, especially when you've got a busy household. So I'm kind of crazy. I'll get up at like 4.30 if I have to. (laughs) It's a little bit too much, but I wish you well, Maria. A listener named Chris writes to me, Hey, Brad, I hope you're well. I'm not sure where else to turn, but in the middle of this pandemic that we're facing, I find myself desiring to read some poetry for pretty much the first time ever. Do you have any suggestions on books of poetry to check out? Signed, Chris. So, uh, Chris, I do indeed have some poetry that I could recommend to you. I've, I've been reading some poetry myself lately. Uh, you can always check out Raking Leaves by my social media director, Joseph Grantham. He's a poet. He's got a new collection out called Raking Leaves. I've been reading uh, David Berman, the late David, uh, David Berman's collection called Actual Air. He's the, uh, you know, the, the lead singer of the Silver Jews and uh and purple mountains which was like my favorite album of last year um you know if you need something sort of comforting and inspirational you can never go wrong with mary oliver she's sort of like the modern day Rumi. Rumi is another one i don't know how woo woo you want to get you know poetry can get fairly woo woo you can read milo martin buddy of mine past guest on this program poems for the utopian nihilist you can read my buddy rich ferguson he's got performances he does like uh, spoken word and is a terrific performer you can track his stuff down on youtube uh my goodness i'm actually not the expert oh uh matthew's a pruder i had megan fernandez on the show recently i've talked to some poets recently that might be a good place to start I'm trying to think who else. Surely I've forgotten somebody, but um, I think it's a great thing to do. Poetry is always a great thing to do because you can, you know, you can read a few poems in a few minutes and, you know, they they go deep and they cut through. So good luck to you, Chris. Thanks for writing. If you're out there and you uh, want to write to me for some reason, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. 
It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Let's get to the main event, shall we? My conversation with Chrissy Van Meter. Her debut novel is called Creatures, and it's out there now from Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Here she is, folks. This is Chrissy Van Meter. I go all the time, still have no kids. My husband and I go all the time. One of my best friends that I've known since I was five has worked there for 15 years. We go all the time. I have a pass. So I've wait, been, you go to Disneyland? I went last weekend. You did? Yeah, I go. I get wasted, walk around, people watch. What, do you, do you smoke pot? Um, I don't. My husband does sometimes before we'll go in. Um, How many times a year are you going to Disneyland? I think probably like at least twice a month. Really? <laughs> yeah. Did you have like a Disney wedding? Um, I didn't have a Disney wedding. I got married out in Woodstock, which is where in New York, where my husband's from. I met him in New York City. And um, we had like stupid Disney cake toppers. But we did go to Disneyland for our honeymoon. And we've been to Disneyland Tokyo, um, Disneyland Paris, Walt Disney World. The only one we haven't been to was China, which we considered <laughs> going this year. But I think we'll... Well, no, wait. I think right now, because like Disneyland is not... They closed my- it. In Anaheim. No, in China. Well, yeah, but I think like they're also pretty, pretty empty right now. It's been great. The measles outbreak, what was that a few years ago? Like 20, maybe 2015 or something. Remember when we had that big, I don't know, when is there not a measles scare now? But, um, there was no one there for like six months and I went as much as possible. You could walk onto every ride because everyone, I think, because they didn't vaccinate their kids. They were afraid they were going to get measles. So it was great as an adult. Yeah. I like that. Like, this is the only time, because I, I don't like Disneyland. This is the only time oh. I want to go is like during the coronavirus outbreak if it's completely empty. Like if it's the apocalypse, I'll go to Disneyland. Yeah. It's um, it's a pretty great place. And there's a whole like really weird online community for Disney fans that I love to follow on like Facebook. And it's just people complaining constantly about what happens at Disneyland, like the cost of things, the food, it's like something I'm obsessed with. And I, I think before bed every night, I love scroll on it. And I feel like I'm super up to date on all Disney park. Damn. What is this? This is just like a, this is like a childhood nostalgia kind of thing. Yeah, I think so for sure. I mean, I, I started going there with my mom. My mom was a single mom and she started taking me, you know, when I was five, um, my first trip to Disneyland, I remember because I got um, I felt weird all day. I was always a quiet, kind of weird, bookish kid. But my mom was one of those people who was always like trying to draw things out of me, you know. So she took me to Disneyland with my cousin. And she said I was really quiet and weird all day. Well, I held in that I was really sick, I guess, all day. Because when I got to the parking lot at the end of the day, I threw up. I lifted up my shirt and I had chicken pox. Oh, my God. All over my stomach. <laughs> and so, I don't know. I've just been going with my family. And then in like... um a really weird Orange County thing is, I mean, Gwen Stefani wrote an album about this, but... What, like Tragic Kingdom? Yeah, that's what it is. But that's it's, like that's like bashing it, right? Tragic Kingdom? Yeah, but they used to go. So what you did in high school was you would, or at junior high, you would go smoke a whole bunch of weed in the parking lot, go into Disneyland. We would tape Jack Daniels bottles to like our legs under our skirts, and you would drink them in the bathrooms and get all fucked up there. And you'd have like, you know, you'd make out with people there and you just, it was like you could smoke cigarettes there. There's no parents. And so like, yeah, that was like a a thing you did. So you're kind of bashing on it, but also it's like a huge part of 
Orange County. You get I me. Mean, what are you going to do? You grow up. You grow up in the shadow of yeah. it. You're going to go, and you, you get go like, every day after school. You get an annual pass. Yeah, so. and at the time they were cheap. Now I can't even tell you how much they are because it's embarrassing that I bought one, but they're ridiculous. They're it's like over a thousand. I mean, it costs, absolutely to take a family. Like, I have two kids. Take my family to Disneyland for a day is easily over a thousand dollars. It's two hundred dollars per person. Yeah. Just for the ticket. Just for the ticket. Mm-hmm. Then you pay parking. You pay parking is twenty five, and then you pay, you know, six dollars for a Dasani water. So I fucking hate Dasani. Um, I why why do I have like a like I don't like certain kinds of water. <laughs> People water. say they hate Dasani. I'm gonna I'm gonna take a hot take. I actually like that one. I don't. Whoa. I think maybe because it's owned by Coke. I swear it has like sugar or something. That's in it. probably I don't like so it. I'm like perfect. I like Fiji water. The oh, bottle, really? That's the bottle like the feels most expensive good. one. Well, that's I am high high class. Taste. I do like the bottle, and, and the little bottle is very cute. The little yeah. like rectangle it feels good in my hand. Yeah, it fits. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, yeah. so I I did mushrooms and went to Disneyland in college. Ah, yes, that was a kind of a nightmare. It was funny in the way that those things are funny at the time, but I remember we tried to smoke a joint on the Matterhorn cable car back when they had that. Do they not have oh, that the anymore? Oh, the sky buckets. The sky buckets. That go through the Matterhorn. They, they do not have those anymore. They don't. But they, d- they did, and they were amazing. And yeah. And so we were like, well, this is the only place we can get away with smoking a joint. And That's we, amazing. we did it. And as we were coming off the ride, and we're like tripping, the guy who let us off the sky buckets was like, guys, don't do that. <laughs> we were like, then now, we like, now you could never. No, we were terrified. I mean, of course, yeah. we're tripping. We're like terrified. Mm-hmm. Like, we like ran away and mm-hmm. like walked through the park and it was like crisis mode and <laughs> that's amazing yeah and uh and then we like walked down some little like side alley and we it was like just like where you put the trash there aren't that many of them in the park if they you yeah know. but then there's like one little like weird like space there was just like it was kind of and my buddy we were tripping so hard he goes oh my god it's a disney dead end <laughs> which <laughs> was a re- novel title right yeah, there <laughs> it was funny at the time anyway that's amazing um so that's my <laughs> disney experience that was the last time you went? No, I have okay. kids. I've been... This is the thing, too. Like, I've been so many times with, like, nieces, nephews, yeah. cousins. And you hate it. Hate it. That's so It's too upsetting. many people. It's too many people. And, like, you know, my daughter went for her birthday. I think it was the last time we went. She's, like, a summer birthday. And it was so fucking hot. Everybody That's the, smells. That, to be fair, summer is absolute literal hell there. Yeah. It's awful. It couldn't be any worse than summer. You You have to go now. Like... Before spring break starts. So, like, the best time to go is, like, right after Christmas. So, like, when they take everything down, like, the second week of January, there's no one there uh, through February. And then you you can go. There's this weird time in between, um, like, Halloween, right before Halloween. So, they, when all the kids go back to school. Right. So, that weird part of September, although it is hot, of course, because that's our, like, hottest month here. But What, October or November? Like, September. Oh, September, yeah. Yeah, it's hot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's summer like- sucks. Summer's bad. No, don't take your kids there in summer. What was her birthday? Change her birthday. And, and, my, and my wife is such a sucker. We stayed at that hotel, like the Disneyland. Oh, God. $700 a night. Is that what it was? Well, the average cost for the Disneyland hotel, which hot tip is better than the Grand Californian. The Grand Californian. That's where we stayed. Those rooms are smaller and they kind of suck. The Disneyland hotel, the classic one, the rooms are bigger. It's a way nicer hotel and it's cheaper. But when I say it's cheaper on average, it's like four hundred, five hundred dollars a night. Dude, you know so much about Disney. I know. They should hire me. <laughs> this should be my job. Can you? I, I'm going to keep pressing on this. Like, what is it? Is it childhood nostalgia? Is that the trip that you're on? What is? I, what no, is the actually, appeal? I think that's only part of it. Like for me, as a writer and as an artist who just wants to constantly make things, it's the best place to go and like trip out almost, right? Like. 
I can go there and yeah, there's the childhood nostalgia and like, I can feel like I'm, you know, whatever that feeling is, but I didn't have the greatest childhood anyway. So it's not like I would go there to remember that. It's like, (laughs) I don't know. Like there's something about like, it opens my mind a little to be like super imaginative or like everything's so weird there. Like if I sit in the tiki room, it's such a trip in there to me. What's the tiki room? What is wrong with you? I don't know. I don't, I'm I'm in a blackout when I'm there. Yeah. You have to go and kids love this too. It's um, an animatronic bird show um, that Mary Blair helped create. She's one of the artists there who made like Small World. She does all that sort of like retro looking 60s artwork. So it's all these, you go in this room, it looks like this Hawaiian tropical oasis thing, like a tiki bar. And you sit in these little rattan um, seats and above you are all of these animatronic birds and there's all these lights and it's like fake feathers and the walls talk. I mean, it's a place, I don't know, for me, it just, it always makes me feel really creative when I leave. Interesting. I, yeah. I, I can get that. And then plus it's like, you have to like, I think you have to have a certain love of kitsch, which oh, is, I thing. have it. You have it. Yeah. I mean, you like kitsch. Yeah. I'm wearing what are you motioning to what you're wearing a Hawaiian shirt? Yeah. You like Hawaiian shirts. Is that yeah, kitsch? It's kitschy. It is it's stupid. Yeah. Do you, do you uh, collect trinkets? Yeah. Well, I have a small apartment and I hate clutter, so I'm pretty good about not having, um, but I do have a lot of like little Disney things here and there and I'm really into like miniature things. So any cute little miniature thing I'll buy. But by the way, for those of you listening, Chrissy is wearing one of the traditional Mickey Mouse ears hats (laughs) as we talk as well. I actually don't wear those because they give me headaches. They do. It's too tight. But I do have some. I did not expect this conversation to be. I know. I can't believe this is where we're going now. I feel a little embarrassed. No, no. (laughs) I I think this is exactly where we need to go. Um, Are you aware of the podcast that this guy does where he records ambient Disney sounds and only ambient Disney sounds? No. Yeah. Oh, my God. I went to this thing called Pop-Up Magazine. Have Mm -hmm. you heard of it? Uh Uh-uh. So it's basically... um, God, I'm going to screw it up. But basically, it's like magazine writers who do like long-form nonfiction journalism read their work or read from their work on stage at like the ace hotel okay yeah 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 and so it's like a magazine come to life and like behind them you can see like photos and they have it projected and Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like a 3d magazine Mm -hmm. experience it's actually really entertaining that's cool i I I like like that yeah and this uh i want to say it was a woman i'm i'm never going to remember her name but she was a journalist and she had written about this guy who is obsessed with disneyland um goes every single day. Yeah, I wish I could do that. And only records the sound. The sounds of the park and his podcast has a huge following. I need to listen to this. Yeah. That's and like great. people people will sit at home and just play it so they can just like hear the park yeah. and like be like feel the atmosphere. So I know there's some of that on YouTube. The one I listen to is called the Esplanade and it's just like the the weird area before you go into Disneyland or California Adventure, right? Cuz there's the two parks. Right. And they play music from the rides um and a lot of it is stuff you can't really find and but you can also hear the people sort of walking it's kind of like an you know weird like ambient sound thing right. so now that i know there's a podcast about this but there's a guy with a chainsaw outside oh, yeah, of like, my studio I, that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know my neighbor i think my neighbor's having some construction done or something <laughs> um so interestingly though just to finish this story is that at pop-up magazine uh, this woman is reading from her work and she's also playing clips from this podcast. Mm. And the guy who hosts it is like, you can just imagine what he's like. Mm-hmm. The guy who goes to Disneyland every mm-hmm. day and records. Oh yeah. He's like very like, you know, just, he's that guy. Fanny pack. And, yeah. Very much mm-hmm. a fanny pack, uh, 
like always. He mm-hmm. sleeps in a fanny pack. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, the the story isn't really so much about the podcast. It's about the fact that this guy meets at Disneyland, I believe, a woman, and they fall in love. And she then becomes, I'm, I could be misremembering this, but oh she then becomes like the co-host of this podcast. I love these people. And they're a couple. I need to know them. But then. Oh, no. The relationship goes sideways and like they're bickering on the podcast. This is amazing. Love turns. It was. This is a movie. Like, why isn't this a movie? Yeah, it was riotously funny in person to hear these clips. Like the crowd was roaring. Like they're just like snapping at each other. (laughs) This is so fascinating. And then at the end, it's like the guy is back to being like a solo act. Mm -hmm. It's just him and his microphones. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, I like, and who knew? Wow. As somebody, I'm making podcasts for a decade of my life, and this guy's listenership, all he does is show up at Disneyland and press record. That's all he's got. That's all he's got to do. Yeah, there's a lot of um, weird pockets of Disney fans, for yeah, sure. Yeah. That's a very interesting one, but not surprising to me. What is the tie that binds? Does everybody, is there, I know everybody has their own personal reasons for loving Disneyland. Like, you know, some people love the kitsch. Some people, it's a creative, generative place. Some people, it's childhood nostalgia. Some people... It's, I don't know. They like plushies. Yeah. You're like, what is it? Is, is there a tie that binds? I think a big thing that I see in all these weird fan groups that I follow, I don't actually write in them, but um, I'm super interested in them. And everyone sort of says the same thing. It's the way I sort of watch like the Kardashians. Um, your mind turns off, right? You get to go in and you just, there's no real world anymore. And so you see a lot of people in these groups like sad shit. They're like, you know, my mom had cancer and we took her for like, it's a place you can go and fantasy. It's fantasy. It's real fantasy. And because it's done so well versus like other theme parks, you know, Disneyland's interesting where when you're in one land, you technically can't see another land and everything flows together. So you're, there's all these things happening almost on a subconscious level there. That doesn't necessarily happen at like a shittier theme park, you know, where you like they need to redo it. Oh God. Well, they're always redoing it. I know they are, but I like what I think what I'm, what I'm getting at is that I want them to like start from scratch with mm-hmm. all this money that Disney has mm-hmm. and like, let, let's see it. Like, cause I feel like in Anaheim, the real estate's all bought out. They can't expand. They cannot expand. You know, Anaheim sort of hates them at this point. They're trying to build a hotel, another hotel. And, and Anaheim said no on their property, but Anaheim is said no. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, actually, I don't want them to build another one. But I just think that, like, it is is impressive. It is impressive the way that the park, like, is run, Mm -hmm. how pristine it is. Yeah, they paint it at night. Every night, people come in and fix up any... That's what you'll never see, like, a a piece of paint chipped in the park. Really? It's insane. You know, I talked to... uh, there's an author, I want to say his name's Scott Snyder. He since went on to uh, be like a comic book writer. Mm-hmm. I got to know him years and years ago. And uh, he had worked at Disneyland. And I want to say he wrote a short story about it. Like you go underground. Like all the yeah. plushies. Like you go down, you go underground yeah. is where like the locker rooms are. Mm-hmm. And... There's a McDonald's down there. Is there? There's also Disneyland jail. So have... if you ever got caught shoplifting. You know? Or smoking weed on the Matterhorn or yeah. whatever. Yeah, that's where they take you. That's where they would have taken mm-hmm. us. But they didn't catch us. <laughs> Well, they did. They just didn't give a shit. They, yeah, they, yeah. Now you can't even smoke cigarettes. They took that out last year. You can't smoke cigarettes in the park. That's okay. But you should be able to vape your weed in Disney. Well, they say you can't, but people vape in there all the time. Yeah. How are they going to stop it? Yeah. What are they going to do? Yeah. They should sell uh, edibles mm. at the gift shops for the parents. 
soon enough, right? Little, little Mickey Mouse yeah. ears. <laughs> Perfect little gummies, Mickey gummies. <laughs> this is a missed opportunity. Ooh. By the way, Bob Iger just resigned. I saw that. How do you feel? Um, I used to work for ESPN years ago in New York City. And um, so he was my boss. We used to make like a lot of jokes about that. And I had like Mickey Mouse on my, my paycheck. So, um, Wait, did you know him? I didn't know him personally, oh. no. But, you know, you'd get these like weird mass emails from the Walt Disney Company. I don't know. I guess I sort of liked him. Um, I do He's wonder... He's a silver fox. He's a handsome man. He is kind of handsome. I've seen him in the park once. Wait, in the, oh, in the Disney yeah. park? Just um, like, like... Walking around. Riding rides? Checking out shit. <laughs> yeah. Was he wearing a suit? No, they don't. No, but you know, it's like you can tell an undercover cop anywhere. You know, yeah, you like yeah. see this friend like, oh, you know, he's like, you know, in a hat, like yeah. a Disney hat and like a button up shirt. Like who wears a button up shirt, long sleeve to right. 95 degree Disneyland. Ugh. Yeah. Um, I saw, I, I hope that nothing bad comes out about him that like, maybe he's like a rapist or something. You never know, I yeah, guess. I, in this I'm day like, and is age. this coming? I don't know. I have friends who work for Disney <clears throat> or who have worked for Disney and they, uh, they have nice things to say. I don't think he's. A, I don't think he's a bad dude. I mean, I don't either. I, in my very limited circle of sort of knowing about him, he seemed maybe he just wants to retire and like go on vacation. He's worth so much fucking money. So much money. Like I get like wanting to accomplish things. Like I, you know, I have complicated relationship with ambition. I'm not <laughs> sure. Yeah, like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about it. You know, I'm sort of like TBD. I think some of it's good. I think it's good to want to do things, but I think it's also good to like really think deeply about why. Yeah. And I guess like, you know, he wanted to build a business or be a big business success. He did that. He's got his health. It would seem, I don't know yeah, how old he, he looks is. Great. He think, looks yeah. great. I heard he gets up at three 30 in the morning oh, I hate these and like people. works out and like is on the road to the office in his like Porsche by like four. I, like what the fuck? I got up at 10 today. <laughs> you did? <laughs> Are you a night owl? I'm a night owl. Also, my husband's out of town this week. So I feel like I have like free reign over the TV and I was just like up all night, like a crazy person watching it. What were you watching? I'm watching, um, love is blind on Netflix. What is that? Uh, it's a really bad reality show about, uh, dating and I actually don't like dating shows. Like I don't watch the bachelor. It's similar to the bachelor, I guess, but basically these people are, um, hmm. I think I watched seriously. I hate to say this like seven hours of it. Something insane. Um, these people have, they don't, the gimmick is they can't see each other and then they have to fall in love and get engaged. So people met after five days and got engaged to be married. So it's sort of like an arranged marriage, I guess. So wait, they can't see each other, <clears throat> but they're communicating somehow. Yeah. It's like in this really weird star Wars pod. They have this like fake, this like glass wall in between them. It's really stupid, but I, I watched it for seriously, like a lot of hours and then wow. I got my best friend hooked on it. So we were just like live texting each other as we were watching the whole thing that's a way that people watch tv it's like you text yeah. with people or you tweet uh -huh. while well, you I would watch. never do that you would never do that no why i don't think i really like twitter oh okay I, I mean i'm on there uh i just the idea like texting with my best friend about it she's reciprocating right yeah who am i tweeting to i don't know you could have friends on twitter you could have your twitter friends i have like five real friends on twitter i don't even know who the other people are and it's really not that many people i would imagine they don't care what i have to say about love is blind you, on netflix you would be surprised i see i used to be on twitter but i i used to see bachelor tweets that was a big deal people love that shit yeah people um people love those dating shows i never really got into them because they're so cringeworthy but this one is more of a train wreck than cringeworthy. 
which is interesting. Because who, after all, would ever cringe at a train wreck? (laughs) Right. Well, do you know what I mean? There's something sad about 20 women going for one man and then all the women fighting. This is more of just like couples fighting. And for some reason, that's more entertaining to me. (laughs) I like the idea of like you have to fall in love and get engaged, but you can't see each other. But the, the stupid thing they did in this show is everybody's hot. So it wasn't like there was like a really fat person or something that like weaseled their way through to like a hot guy, right? Like that would have been a cool gimmick. Like, no, everybody was like, you know, they look like they're all like hot on Instagram and they all like met each other. Like, I can't believe how hot this, you know, my date or my husband is or whatever. It's like, well, no shit. Like, yeah, you just got the hottest person ever. How exciting would that be? And you're getting along with them and then they reveal it and it's just like somebody who's like smoking hot. Yeah, so the the whole thing is um, sort of hilarious, but it's. I think a lot of people are watching that show. I did see people hashtag it on Twitter. I did not participate, but but other people are talking about it. Well, maybe you need to join some sort of uh, you know online group or something about it. Well, I find that the Facebook um, fan groups, like I was saying for Disneyland too, are the weirdest ones because it's different than Twitter. Twitter, I think, is a little more calculated. People on there are not not smarter, but they see they sound smarter in their tweet. People on Facebook, it's like politics on facebook they'll write you know an essay a terrible essay about their opinion about i'm just fascinated uh, by this yeah people are really weird to me i love it so okay fullerton fullerton quiet bookish <clears throat> yeah um i'm i'm an only child which probably made me even more quiet and bookish um, but I had, like I said, I'm one of 10 first cousins. We're all one year staggered. And we all, my whole family, the working class family, they all lived in this, like literally the same mile radius. So went to school with my cousins and that's great. Grew up with a lot of aunts. I actually thought that most people lived this way. I think it's actually the healthiest way to live. It was not bad. I mean, it was great. I had both grandmothers at all times and I had, I, you know, on the same street, I could sort of bounce back and go from house to house and my aunt lived five houses away from me i had dinner there every night my mom worked a lot and a lot of jobs to keep us like afloat where was your dad my dad um my parents divorced when i was like four he moved to newport beach when i was a kid so i did see him but only on like the weekends and stuff um it was mostly my mom and i and my my giant fam so yeah we had like big holidays and you know, walk down the street for Christmas Eve and be with 20 people. So I guess I thought everyone sort of grew up that way. And then no. as I got older and I would tell people I had all four grandparents, you know, on the same street, they're like, what? I even know my grandparents. I'm like, oh, like I just thought this was that, how that, how that all went. Um, but I went to, I went to a really good public high school into Sunny Hills, which is in Fullerton. Um, Sunny Hills. Yeah. What a name. Southern California. Scummy Thrills. Sc- <laughs> that's what we called it. <laughs> Scummy Thrills. Um, yeah. So Southern California and hilarious, but I didn't really go to school. I kind of barely graduated. What do you mean? I definitely ditched class almost all the time to go surfing, go down to the beach, see my dad. Uh, when my senior year I had... I think it was like 36 excused absences and my mom, the school called my mom, basically like one step away from child services. And they were like, hey, this number 36, like you excused 36 absences. She can barely graduate. My mom was like, I never did that. And I had just forged her signature on everything. And she trusted me a lot of the time. I'm not sure why. But um, yeah, so I didn't really have like a like I went to community college. I didn't even, I didn't even take SATs. So like looking back, I had this like really great. But why were you, why were you such a, a truant? 
Is that a word? Truant? Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, Truancy, right? Truancy. I haven't thought of that word in a long time, but why were you ditching class? I mean, you just wanted to go have fun. Why were yeah. you so disengaged? It was like a therapy session now. Um, I don't know. I think, you know, I got good grades for the most part and I, I still like, I liked school. Um, not math. I'm terrible at math. No surprise. Um, I don't know. You know, no one in my family had gone to college. I kind of just know we had never talked about it. I just thought I didn't need to do anything. I would, I knew I was going to go to community college if I wanted to go to college. And so I just, you were just going to live in that neighborhood yeah, for the rest like, of your life. Well, like... I, I didn't want to live in that neighborhood, but <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I just wanted to go to the beach and I just wanted to hang out. And I felt like relationships were more important than school. I, I just, I also, I didn't really push myself no one ever really pushed me in school. And I never got like a teacher or anybody that took me under their wing and was like, hey, you're not an idiot. You could do. I just kind of like floated through. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I never had that teacher either who was like, I see something in People you, People say that. And I'm like, where was that <laughs> yeah, from me? Like, right. What the fuck? I've bitched about that a lot. Yeah. Like, you know, like, why, why did I never get, why did I never get like the mentor, you know? I, I did get one in community college. Um. I think I didn't place an English 100. I had to like retake the test. I think I was also late to the test. Again, I making myself self sound terrible. But I had this teacher my freshman year at community college, Mr. Piersdorf, and he was he's definitely got to be dead now. He was like 105 then. And he ha he wore like a Newsies cap, you know, and he actually would smoke a pipe of tobacco outside of the door of the class when we were doing like our journaling or whatever. <laughs> and I would always write really bad poems in there and he took me aside this 900 year old man. And he said, Hey, have you ever thought about being a writer? And I had always been writing really bad poetry, which I've kept and not looked at, but I have like rhyming poetry from high school. Oh yeah. Right. Did you bring any with you? Absolutely not. <laughs> Actually, I don't even know where it is. I know I have it somewhere in like composition books with stickers like your desk here. Um, <clears throat> I have for people listening, I have a sticker collage on my desk top that my daughter and I have been working on. It's very cool. Very Wahoo's fish tacos. Yeah, is said. it tacky though? Is it tacky or is it cool? Well, I think it's cool because I like kitsch. So for oh, right. me, this is perfect. Okay, yeah, this is my little uh, kitsch monument to kitsch right here. That's great. I just wanted to do an art project. With my That's daughter. very cool. Yeah, <laughs> inspired. Um, okay, so you go to community college. This guy yeah. is smoking a tobacco pipe. Yeah, and he is uh, your mentor. No, he was not a mentor. But he was he like saw a person that said, hey, have you ever thought about this? Which I don't think I had. I don't think I thought about anything. I just knew I was going to need to get a job. And I didn't want to live at home. Um, and so I started taking some creative writing classes in community college and then kind of spawned, I guess, from there. And were you reading anything that was uh, like lighting you up at that time? Were there books in your life that were deeply meaningful? I found Marquez. Oh. Yeah. I think in high school, because I didn't really go to class, I was always just reading whenever I wanted. And I didn't really get, like, I still, I didn't read a lot. I was reading, no surprise, like a lot of Sylvia Plath in high school, you know, uh -huh. of course. Um, but I never read a lot of the, like, sort of, like, Scarlet Letter shit and all the canonical things. And so when I got to college, I was like, I'm still going to make my own reading lists. But, you know, the great thing about college is you sort of get all these new, new people that you wouldn't have maybe found in high school because you're not in a, like a scary public education curriculum anymore. And so I found uh, Marquez and I read uh, 100 Years of Solitude and Love in the Time of Cholera. And when I read Love in the Time of Cholera, I was like, oh, oh my God. Like, because I, at the time too, I was, I was also trying to read a lot of contemporary novels and things like that. And um, 
I think I was accidentally reading a lot of like adult genre fiction, you know, and I hated all of it. So when I started kind of diving into Marquez, I was like, and then I, of course, just like absorbed all of his short stories, his novellas, everything. And then I think when I, when I knew, when I got to, I did actually transfer to a real college. Um, Where'd you go? San Diego State. Okay. I actually joined the crew team in community college because I saw a sign in the bathroom. Like that, you're rowing. Yeah, rowing. Where are you rowing in, in Newport Beach? So I went oh. to community college at Orange Coast College. Yeah, there was a sign that said, "If you're five um, ten or taller and you want a scholarship, go to this room at this time." That could have literally been anything, and I went to that room. <laughs> and the I'm I'm almost six feet tall, so the um, the coach took one look at me and said, "We'll just teach you how to row, and we'll get you a full scholarship." And she did. So I got recruited, and then ended up going. I should have gone to Berkeley looking back. Uh, but San Diego state, my recruitment visit, I got to go surfing. I made out with a dude. I like partied so hard. I was like, this is my school. Like this is where I should go. So I did go there. Um, and then while I was there, I was an English major. And then I read Faulkner and I read as I lay dying. Um, and I was like, Oh, you don't have to write like linear, straightforward genre, plot driven stuff. And then that's when I kind of went down a path of like, I want to try this. I want to play with this. Um, and I love that book hmm. so much. So that was the one. That was the one, I think. And you were you writing during this time? Like besides the poems? No. No. When did you start writing? I think I started writing about that time. Like I, I, I was in a creative writing class. So I had to write a short story. And I actually remember I was back in town in Fullerton and I sat down at my aunt's like, you know, big computer when we had like the big box screen computer and i wrote my first short story it was called going north Ugh. um what was it about it was about two high school girls that never went to class that were super fucked up on weed all the time <laughs> and they went up to san Luis obispo to see a basketball player boyfriend and they got in a fight oh. yeah very feels auto fictiony yeah well <laughs> you know i was like 19 let's um, just say that friendship doesn't exist anymore kind of exists it kind of does it's a little rocky <laughs> no surprise um yeah so i that was a, when i wrote a first short story and i did it all in one sitting so that interested me like this idea of um how do we really do this and and can i do this do i want to do this and so i sl slowly started writing short stories i didn't even know what an mfa was i did end up getting an mfa but um where'd you go I went to the new school in New York City. Oh. Yeah. I, I After college, I thought, oh, I'll be a journalist. That makes the most sense for me. And I have been in editorial for the last, like, whatever, 15 years. Um, and I kind of hate it. But I've been doing it for so long. And I started as a sports writer in L.A. And then I got a job at ESPN in New York City. And I had never been to New York City. Uh, I, or no, no, that's a lie. I had gone for 24 hours one time. Um and I said, fuck it. I want to go. I want to get away from my family. So I went with, I got rid of everything I owned, which wasn't much. And when I was 22, I moved to New York City. Okay. Yeah. How was that? It was great. I would have stayed if I didn't meet my husband. You like New York? I like New York. It's great. It's a great it's place. It's a fun place to be in your 20s. Yeah. I think, right, going back now at 35, <laughs> would I feel the same? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, although I was saying that my husband's there right now. He's on a work trip. And he's been sending me all these texts. Like, also, I think he's just drunk wandering around the city at night. And he's like, it's so right here. We have to move back. And I'm like, we can't afford to move back. Like, it's so fucking expensive. Yeah. If anything, I've like, 
I feel like my career has tanked in a lot of ways in terms of money. So I'm like, we can't go back to New York Like as a journalist, you mean? Or as an editorial? Well, when I left New York to come back here, I got like a basic ass like editor role at like some weird media company, right? Which isn't journalism. That's like lifestyle journalism. And like, Mm -hmm. I was working on like DIY blogs and like shit I hated. And I eventually got laid off there, which was no surprise to anyone. How do you make any money? I mean, it's really hard. It's hard for like an established newspaper. Yeah. I think, I think unless you go into like, I think a lot of people do this, right? You become an editorial director or content strategist, or you work for like a advertising agency out here and I'm not very good at copywriting. So yeah, I'm kind of a freelance cobbled together person at this point. Right. Right. So you go to New York for school. Nope. You went to, you just went to New York and you, and you got the ESPN job. Yep. I covered surfing. Oh, you did. (laughs) Are you a good surfer? No, not anymore. I was growing up. I grew up surfing and I'm definitely, my family's like water people surfing crew. Yeah. Crew. Well, that I didn't even know what it was till I went to that weird room, (laughs) but but you were a natural. Yeah, but it was fine. Cause I, I am, I'm a great swimmer. I'm like an ocean swimmer, all of those things. Like I'm definitely an ocean person. So it was an easy transition. Um, for sure. But yeah, so covering surfing made sense. It was something I know that culture well. And did you get to go to cool places? I did, yeah. Where'd you go? My favorite place to go was I got to stay on the North Shore um, for like two or in Hawaii for like two or three months during Christmas time. That's when all their big waves come. So yeah. you just go kind of post up. And honestly, being in my like early to mid 20s and traveling and following professional surfers around the world is really not <laughs> the worst thing that happened to me. That's awesome. Yeah. It was a pretty great Are any gig. of them... Okay. This is going to sound really bad, but are, like, are there any... I find whenever I like listen to surfers talk... Oh, God. They can't talk. They're just like, yeah, the waves. I mean, the truth <laughs> is, yes. There are some like thoughtful... Oh, um... Surfers within their lives or something. But I... And, and like the thing is, though, is that... I totally get it. If I were that good at surfing and I could go out into the ocean and just like dance around on the waves like that, like I would be. Yeah. Well, I think too that, um, a lot of professional surfers, right. Have been, that's the only thing they've ever done. So the reason they're so good is they've been doing it since they were little kids. Right. Groms as we call them. Right. So you call them what? Groms. Like a grommet. Oh, that's what a, that's what a kid surfers call Mm -hmm. a grom. Grom. Okay. So they've been doing it for so long. And I think you're part of this really weird, tiny community. It's not like anyone. It's so specific to be a surfer, right? Not only does like geography play into this, but it's not that appealing to someone who say lives in like Chicago or something. Maybe it's interesting, but you're not going to like follow along with this weird culture thing. Right. Right. Somebody on our roof. I guess we'll see. What's going on? I don't know what's going on. (laughs) But, uh, the Groms coming for us. But yeah. yeah, it's the only thing they've ever done. So I think, you know, it's not like they focused on other stuff, academic stuff either. And know? I think maybe just the act of surfing, it's like, you know, any kind of spectacular athletic achievement is by its very nature sort of divorced from mind. You can't mm-hmm. be thinking. Mm-hmm. That's the point of it. That's right? the point. Especially it's, with surfing. It's just like instinct based. Yeah. So your mind is yeah. like emptied out and you're just pure reflex and physicality. Yeah. Right. You get out of the water after like six hours mm-hmm. of like of dominating, mm-hmm. you know, at that. And somebody asks you a question. Mm-hmm. I would be like, I don't know, bro. You yeah. Know, I, I understand. Yeah, you think it. You're mentally sort of 
spaced out, right. if you will. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's cool. So you're traveling, you go to Hawaii. Did you go to like uh, international locations? Um, where did I go? There is somebody on the road. Literally, there's someone on the road. <laughs> this is a first for the Other People podcast. We're going to just talk right through it. There's a man on my roof. <laughs> How do you know it's a man? I don't know. It could be. It could be one of my fans. I think I have a stalker who has just repelled down onto my roof. That's so funny. But it's probably like uh, somebody from the power company or something. I mean, I hope so. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think, I think the... I did... We had to go to Aspen a lot, too, because we would cover also like... Um, X Games. Yeah. How was that? So... Uh, to no one's surprise, I am not a snow person. At all. <laughs> it's to, pretty. You went to Sunny Hills. You went to Scummy Thrills. Scummy Thrills. thrills. <laughs> uh, full of sunshine. Yeah, no, I'm I'm a beach person through and through. And so I really did give it a uh, a go to try to learn to ski. But I think when you're, um, you know, already however old I was, like I was, it was too late. Um, but I did take some snowboarding lessons. And um, I'm also afraid of heights. So I hated that. What is it called? The, the ski, ski lift? lift. That is terrifying. Somebody to me. just died in Vail. Did you read that? No. See, why would you tell me that? He he, like oh my slipped. God. No, he. I want to say he slipped through. Like they didn't put the seat down properly. Oh my god! And so he like <laughs> slipped through and suffocated inside of his coat. I don't know what happened. Something That's horrible. Like very poetic. Horrible. Um, I took the ski lift down, back down, because I couldn't make it down the mountain. Yeah. Which apparently is a no-no. I didn't... How would I know? You just stayed on it? No, I got off, tried to go down the bunny slope, was like, no. Also, growing up surfing, your instinct, you dive forward, hands first, so that you don't break your neck. So you go you through get, the wave. You go through the wave. Or or if you're falling off of a wave, you always hands first because you, you're not going to snap your neck, right? You don't know how deep it is. You don't know where you are, whatever, whatever. If you hit a reef or something. Um, but snowboarding, you're apparently supposed to fall on your ass. You're supposed to fall backwards, right. like into the snow. So you were diving? diving my wrists were blue like they were so swollen i kept diving headfirst into and snow is not soft i mean the side of a mountain is the side of a mountain it's like a frozen solid right so i gave up on my very first lesson with my espn crew who had no patience to teach me yeah and nobody you know by the way you no, go with friends who know how to ski they I, left I, me yeah i went through this when i was a, i went to boulder for college oh, okay and I get them from Indiana. I never skied a day in my life. Yeah. And I'm like out there with all these dudes who grew up doing mm -hmm. it. And they're like, don't worry, man. We'll take you. No, no. They ditch get you. Get me to the top of the mountain. They're gone. Same. I, I'm just by myself. Like, yeah. okay, I got to figure this out. And I, I kind of did. Like, I can get down a mountain. Oh, no. I've never done that. But I can't surf. I tried to surf when I moved out here. And I had a, like a buddy who took to it. And he's like, come on. And like, for, and like I bought a board. Yeah. Got a wetsuit. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to do this. Yeah. And for like two weeks, we were religious about it. I went out every day and it was so fucking crowded and I didn't know what Where'd I was you doing. you go, Malibu? Uh, yeah, in Orange County, you mm, know? Ugh. Yeah. And it was like, I would like, I, I would wipe out and I would like, you know, be gasping for air. I'd come up and somebody would be pissed off at me because yeah. my board hit him in the face yeah. or something. I was yeah. like, I can't deal with this. Yeah. This isn't mellow. I thought this was going to be mellow. No. It's not. It takes a lot of time to learn how to do it. I was actually a surf teacher for San Diego State University in college. Um, and so I would teach people for credit how to surf. Jesus Christ. I know. I'm the worst. And um, You got credit for that? Like yeah, academic San Diego State. Why do you think I went there? <laughs> <laughs> Not Berkeley. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you need sort of someone to push you into waves. That's a good way to start. You can't sort of, you'll never know how to get enough speed. I think what happens is like if your friend, I'm assuming what happened to you was you got aboard, you got all the gear, 
you literally paddled out there because it's not hard to paddle out. You get can out get there. through, yeah. And then like trying to catch a wave. But you can't catch a wave. So the catching the wave itself is is something that takes so much time and instinct and you have to understand how the ocean works. You have to understand wind. You have to know where waves break. You have to know how the rip currents are working. All of these things that takes time and intuition and, you know, literally learning how how the ocean works. And what happens when you really teach someone to surf is you don't go ever past sort of the breakwater. You go where it's, say, up to your chest or something, and you push someone into waves so they get the feeling of – because, you know, as you're trying to get up, the board moves so much. It's not stable. People think it's like this stable thing. It's not. It's shaking. So you sort of learn where to put your hands and how to get your body up. And once you master that, then you go out. Is it too late for me? No. At age 44? No, absolutely not. Is there still time for Brad to surf? You can do it. This could be like my, my golden years You can uh, do it. Experience. Now's the time. What, this time of year, you mean? Yeah. Actually, if you... Well, also, the, the warmest water is always October, so... Right. And you have to be sort of careful where you go and um, all of those things, but um, I can give you a lot of tips. You ever see a shark? Um... Is this going to scare you if I... No. I, mean, um, I love these kinds of stories. Okay, so... As long as nobody gets hurt. But. I have seen one once. Um, another time, though, uh, I think I was, I guess, in my 20s. Um, I was surfing with my uncle down in San Onofre at Old Man's, which is a... Re- that's where you should go. Not because it's called Old Man's, but it's a really <laughs> chill spot I see to what, go. I see what okay, you're yeah. saying. Yeah. Um, that's where those big boobs are, you know, the yeah. nuclear power plant. Yeah. So I had... There's a, by the way, there's a nuclear power plant in between Orange County and San Diego, <laughs> It's called San Onofre. Mm, it's a famous, yeah. famous uh, surf break. Mm-hmm. And there's the nuclear power plant. There's, if you've ever seen uh, the movie The Naked Gun, mm-hmm. yes. where Frank Drebin is driving, and he says, everywhere I look, something reminded me of her. And then you look to, you know, he glances, mm-hmm. and the camera follows his gaze, and there's these two large, like, concrete domes that look like big boobs, yeah. basically. Yeah, they fully look like boobs. So that's San Onofre, and that's yeah. where you... Yeah, that's, like, a really good place to teach people and learn... Um, because the waves are mellow and they're sort of like long rolling waves. Um, and you know, you could be on a long board there, which is, I hope what you bought and not a short, not board. a, not a fully long board, but it was like a mid size. I oh. forget what you call it. No, it you want like the biggest board possible to start. Right. Otherwise yeah. you'll, unless you're like the most athletic person who's like, uh, yeah, no, you, you want like the biggest board. You can rent them too. So when you were out covering surfing for ESPN and you're like camped out in the North shore, they put you up somewhere. Yeah. But I was in like a house with like all these dudes, like in like a house that before Airbnb, but like similar to that, you know, where you're just kind of like, sometimes you sleep on the couch. Sometimes you get a room. Sometimes you're in someone else's room. Just, just never of, know. How do you know these dudes? Are they ESPN yeah, dudes? No, this was, yeah. And I worked at another, I worked for, um, in LA, I worked for another sports company too called Wasserman. They're a big agency. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was my first job out of college and they had, um, like, you know, websites, you know, in 2006, they had a lot of websites (laughs) and they had like a surfing one, but yeah, so it was just, yeah, like a whole bunch of people. ESPN was better, right? In Aspen, I got my own hotel room and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, are you like, is it festive when you're in the North shore? I'm picturing it just like a campfire. Have you ever been there? Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, um... Yeah, I mean, it's it's a big part of that culture, right? At that time of year to celebrate sort of these big waves and that's where Pipeline is and all of that stuff. So Did you see some insane... Yeah. You must have seen some insane waves in yeah. Britain, like surfers uh, doing crazy shit. Actually, have you ever heard of the horrible but also best movie, Blue Crush? I have, yeah. I've seen parts of it, I think. Yeah. It's um, really terrible and tacky and hilarious, but also does kind of paint a picture of that like sort of North Shore 
uh, like hilarity of of people and and but um no i i love it out there i i feel like i could live there maybe in, in hawaii yeah i mean north shore of oahu oahu yeah you know what i haven't been there oh, okay i have not i've been to hawaii but i've not been to oahu of all of all the islands yeah where have you been big island maui Kauai. oh so like almost all of them yeah i'm going to Kauai for the first time in june oh really yes it's very pretty. The North Shore of Kauai is really pretty. I've heard that, and I, I've been to the Big Island. I love well. the Big Island's my favorite. People say that, and also the. Did you go to Volcanoes National Park? Yeah. Oh my God! It's like you're on another planet. I mean, the volcano tubes you go underground. Dude, and I saw through. hot lava. Yeah, same. Like falling into the ocean yes. and big plumes of steam. And... I like teared up when I saw the actual volcano at night, like spewing. Yeah. I was like, oh my God! What I is met... it, Mauna Kea? What mm-hmm. is it? Yeah. It's like, and the drive out there. Yeah. It's just so wild. surreal and yes. wild and like apocalyptic. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. I love the big island for yeah. that. And like Kauai is more of like the lush, like mm-hmm. Jurassic Park. That's where I think right they have like a that's where it was filmed. I saw I yeah. just recently saw you could like they have like a Jurassic Park tour. Yeah. And you which I mean like, won't do. my wife and I um God, I guess this was before we had kids, but we went and we did like a helicopter tour. It was it's pretty beautiful. Yeah, I'm excited. I, I know it's a lot smaller. I mean, Oahu's pretty small. Yeah. I mean, they're all small. Yeah, but, they're you know. islands. But uh, you think you could live there? I thought, like, the time that we went to the Big Island, mm. I came back and I was like, I think we should just move here. Yeah. It's so fucking pretty. I actually liked Hilo, too, and, like, all the farm. Yeah, area. Like, yeah, that yeah. was so... I didn't expect that at all. Yeah. And then when I saw how people lived there, and, like, I don't know, there was, like, this really cool sense of community. Um, I mean, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense for me to live there. Like, right. I don't know anyone there, and it's far from here well then i had a buddy whose uh girlfriend at the time grew up in uh i guess oahu she mm-hmm. went to punahou that mm-hmm. school that obama went to mm-hmm. but she was like she talked me down she was like dude everyone gets island fever all the kids are on meth like you know what i'm saying she painted yeah. this like horrid picture of, i've heard like, that too you know people go bananas when they live there because there's like you know after a while my book is about an island obviously so it's something i catalina so it... no um, I, I do, I do imagine Winter Island being, it's obviously fictional. Winter Island being the fictional island in yeah. your book. Yeah. 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 Um, but it, uh, I definitely think it's the Balboa Peninsula in a lot of ways, but I was fascinated and still am even spending time in Hawaii. Like the idea of living on an island sounds so appealing, but also horrifying to me. Right. Like emotionally, it feels like, yeah, like Island Phoebe, you, you freak out. Like I, I feel that way also. I was just in Denver. I know you said you went to Boulder, but like, yeah. I feel very landlocked there. I feel like a sense of like anxiety being really? in the middle. Yeah. I guess being, I guess if you're coastal, I mean, I, I get it, but I, I like that you can like flee to the hills. Yeah. But then what's beyond that? Like where, you know what I mean? I, I think there's something for me about the ocean where it's like, okay, you've reached the end unless you're going to conquer and explore the depths of the ocean. Um, you know, you're at the end, the edge of the world. Like the idea of like, my husband loves mountains too. Cause he's from the Catskills, which those aren't really mountains. Sorry, but I've never been to the Catskills. They're like really pretty Hills. People like, would argue and probably hate me for saying that, but compared to the mountains we have here, like think of like Yosemite or something, right. Or even literally like our basin area and looking at the mountains and the Santa Monica mountains, San Bernardino, like the Catskills are very pretty, but to me, they look like rolling Hills covered in trees. Right. You know? Yeah. But yeah, mountains, um, I love them. I just, I think I'm a 
edge of the world. Person. So you think you could live on an island because you'd feel like you could get out into the water and escape or something? Maybe. But I've never done it. So here I am saying that and I live in Los Angeles. I you, don't know. Do you know who Ramdas is? Uh-uh. That spiritual guru oh, dude? Yeah. In Venice. I live right by that. No, well, Ramdas lived in uh, Oahu, I want to say. He just died in December. But there's a big following of it too. Oh, is there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of followings yeah. in Venice. But uh, there's like a documentary about him on Netflix. Ooh. And like, you know, he moved out there to kind of, he had a stroke and then he moved out there to sort of convalesce and just like kind of live in a warm, hospitable climate. Yeah. He's obviously not doing much mm-hmm. physically. Mm-hmm. Um, like, is it too morbid to say like the idea of living in Hawaii or on an island it appeals to me? is like, it's a good place to go die. Like if you're like, I'm, you know, these are my, my twilight years, it's going to be, you know, might as well go be somewhere beautiful. I don't need to move around. Yeah. Well, isn't that retirement kind of in itself? Like when you're like, I'm going to go to Florida or. Uh, but I mean, I think there's also a point in life where you are no longer ambulatory mm-hmm. or like you're lacking vital energies mm-hmm. that you might be able to sustain all the way, you know, into your nineties. It mm-hmm. just depends for people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think once I reach, cause I'm a pretty, I, I think I'm a pretty vital person. Like I'd like to move. Mm-hmm. I like to exercise mm-hmm. and do shit. I don't want to be inside. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I ever do Hawaii, maybe it'll be like, you know, I'm like 94. Mm-hmm. Like, all right, let's just go there. Yeah. Just like sit on that island. Sit I mean, on the it volcano. It's so pretty. Yeah. It's like one of those places. It's kind of the way I feel about Yosemite. There's places I go that I love. Like, I love cities. I think I'm a city person. But then I'll go see these sort of like nature, nature's like majesty, right? And like Hawaii is one of those places where you get there and you're just like, holy shit, is this real? Like, yeah. I can't believe this is a real place. And then you see people just casually living there and you're like, what is this like? But like, like it's, it's the same thing I was talking about with surfers. Like, man, there's, you live in Hawaii. <laughs> yeah. Everyone, everything moves slower. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing necessarily. Right. Well, when you're 94, I think that's just perfect. Ch- chill out. Yeah. Talk slow, <laughs> move slow. <laughs> when I moved to New York, people would say to me, what's, what's your accent? I was like, my accent, like, <laughs> bitch, I don't have an accent. I'm from Los Angeles. Like you're, you're supposed to be doing my accent, right? Like, but people said I talked really slow. Really? And then I was like, Oh no, that's so weird. Like, and not, it wasn't vocal fry, but it was just like slow talking. I thought just what you're saying about surfers. I was like, Oh shit, here I am talking to real people in the world. Like, Hey, what's going on, man? Like, so I still have to like, sometimes, especially when I'm drunk, I have to like correct myself. Cause I will go to that weird, maybe surfer default of... Well, listen, Orange County kids. Orange County, yeah. Orange County kids, it's a real Gross. thing. It's a real thing, surf culture. Yeah. So what about New York? You talk about being landlocked in mm-hmm. Colorado and like having a sense of anxiety. You move from Sunny Hills to... to uh Where were you living in New York? So when I first got off the plane, I stayed with a friend in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Okay. Uh, which is right across the bridge from Staten Island. So it's the very end of Brooklyn. It's the last stop on the R train. I lived there for a few months and then we got a place in like downtown Brooklyn before it was crazy, crazy expensive as it is now. Um, and I lived there, I think about five years and yeah, I loved New York. I didn't feel landlocked there because there's water. Everywhere. Oh, right. There's water. You yeah. can go surf out in Queens. And actually you absolutely can surf out in Queens. And I ended up, a place I fell in love with was Montauk. I ended up finding all these other women surfers and we're all still friends. And, you know, they 
had already sort of established themselves in New York. So they had summer houses, which I didn't even know was like a thing people do. So I got kind of like looped into this community and it was great. Like I love Montauk. I loved going out there and there's like, you know, all of Long Island has a million beaches. Like it, I didn't feel as landlocked as I thought maybe I would. Like, yeah. And are you surfing? Um, I, after crew, I've had two hip surgeries and have a lot of knee problems. So I don't really surf anymore at all. Uh, I was kind of surfing then, but but not really. I was mostly teaching people how to surf at yeah. that point. Um, but yeah, so I don't I don't really surf at all anymore. Do you get in the water? Yeah. You like body surf and stuff? Yeah. I like that. That's great. Like I don't need the I don't know Do if you have I fins. Need... Uh no. Oh, you got to get fins. Get fins. They go easier. ten times faster. It's so much more fun. Yeah. You can actually drop into like bigger waves. There's a great body surfing uh, beach in Laguna. Mm-hmm. You ever been there? I have. What's it called? There's a there's a few. There's Thalia Street has a really good one. Uh huh. Um, all of Laguna because it's crazy shore breaks. So you can just kind of the waves, right? So shore break is when, um, like when you think of old man's or San Onofre, there's like a whole bunch of, it's shallow for a long way out. So the waves kind of break and roll in. But when you have a shore break, you have these like quick, fast waves that break on, on the shore because it drops really quickly. So uh-huh. it goes from deep to shallow quickly. So oh, right. all of Laguna sort of. Like this, kind of like the wedge in Newport Beach is very similar to this. Yeah, that's so, a, that wave yeah. looks so dangerous to me. I see it on TV and they're like, the wedge, the wedge is breaking. And I'm yeah. like, who the fuck is riding this thing? This is nuts. Yeah, so that's one of the most famous body surfing beaches. And that's because it's got that kind of break where like you walk out, say, say if you were just a tourist walking out, you would be up to your head in water in like, you know, four steps. It, it just drops off really quickly. So it breaks pretty crazy there and yeah the you, wedge is insane and if you get wipe if you wipe out it's just slamming you into the ground yeah you snap your neck but i think if you go out there hopefully if it's 20 feet you, you know what the fuck you're doing one would hope but they don't always i mean there's the lifeguards get so pissed they got to go out there and get people out of there all the time because people are like i can do it like, <laughs> no you can't like, i see who's that person like i would have I to be a lot of absolutely sure i've got no i've got no i would uh, never do it daring do i'm like i'm Same. cautious I think I'm pretty cautious. I wouldn't. As, well, as I get older, too, I find that I'm like, hmm, that looks too scary. Like, no, no, I've aged out of this. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. And I don't, don't want to get hurt. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I, I don't need it. I don't yeah. need uh, the validate. I surf the wedge. Who yeah. gives a shit? Yeah, I don't care about that stuff either. What's the biggest wave you've ever surfed? I think in Mexico, um, probably like eight feet. Okay. Yeah. That's eight feet over your head. No. No. Total. So well, how do you measure a wave? Head. What's the deal? You like? It's like from the. It's from like, so like if it's double overhead, right, you would, then it would be another six feet over my head. Okay. Yeah. All right. And where were you in Mexico? It's like a high school road trip. I'm fascinated by kids who grew up in like Southern California. I grew (laughs) up in Indiana. Yeah. We didn't do shit. Yeah. We used to go to like Tijuana all the time. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, Cabo, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. This was in Baja. Um, I don't even remember where. Like weekend trip, just to go yeah. down to Baja. And... Well, and then I and then I went to college in San Diego. So, oh, right. You know they don't do this anymore, but they had a bus, like a big tour bus, um, paid for by the school that would drive all the drunk kids in this bus over the border to party, and then drive you home at the end of the night. That's smart. Yeah, they don't do it anymore. They should. They're going to do it awesome. anyway. Kids are going to do it anyway. Get them a bus. Yeah. So don't. you just got on those. You know those like the bus you take from like the airport or something to like a, like a mega bus or something. The drunk shuttle. Yeah. But Fucking they don't nightmare. do it. They, I, they don't do it anymore. 
Um, I don't know why. People I mean, like puking in it on the way home. And... <laughs> yeah, it was awful. Oh, it's just like sororities in there, like uh. puking on each other for the like hour drive back. But it's like, that's your ride. You get on no matter what. Yeah. So you're going to stay in Mexico for the night. Do they have somebody like counting off, like to make sure everybody gets back on? Or is it just like get on by 1am or you're No, stuck yeah, here? no, you're you have to be, you know, you're in college now, so you have to be a responsible person and get the fuck on the bus. Right. I don't think I took that bus many times. I had friends sort of that would drive us down. The Tijuana bus. Like Rosarito. Rosarito Beach. Yeah. Yeah. Go down there, eat, surf, come home. That sounds fun. Yeah. I've never been to Tijuana. Really? I've I've never been to Catalina. I've only been to Catalina once. I got to do some stuff. Catalina's meh. Is it? That's that's why I don't want to go. Everybody tells me they're like, eh. It's a lot. It's a journey. Right? To get to like just another beach. I mean, the one cool thing is there are buffalo. They're wild buffalo and they're uh-huh. coming back. So that's a cool thing to see. But they're so protected that I actually, what I've heard is it's kind of hard to like the chances of you encountering that would be. Um, also, the other thing you can, you can gamble if that's your jam. Not anymore. I used to like in college, I thought it was cool to like, now I just find it like idiotic to flush your money down the toilet. Yeah. My mom lives in Vegas. She's been there since I was like 18. So I've spent a lot of time in out the there. casinos. Yeah. I hate gambling. Yeah. It's, it's just, never been fun to me. No. And I mean, it's fun if you win. If you win, it's like the, it's like the most fun. It's like, I can't believe I'm mm-hmm. getting all this money for, <laughs> do, for doing this. But that's game. so rare, especially with slots. Yeah. Well, you have yeah. to like play cards or something. You have to play cards. And I think like games of skill, like poker or, uh, yes. craps or something, but with neither of which I know how to play. I don't Same. like, I don't well, like games. Craps, the one where you just throw the. You throw the Guns. die. I don't even know how it works. It's I don't either. Too it's much. like an odds game. I can't do math. So for me, Vegas is a fucking nightmare. Yeah. I play blackjack. Okay. That's easy enough. Is that 21? Yeah. Okay. And uh, I could probably do that. <laughs> yeah. That's the game for like, rem- remedial people. <laughs> yeah. like, oh, you can go play blackjack. You can pretend to be a gambler. But <laughs> I think the house odds are even better at blackjack than they are. Or I think it's like, if you know what you're doing, if you really know what you're doing, it's like poker is a game of skill. Mm-hmm. Craps, I think you can really master it. And have better chance of winning than somebody like me who would go mm-hmm. in and just like lose his shirt, not having any clue. Yeah, you know? you're like Clark Griswold. Yeah. Yeah, I can't do that. So uh, your mom moved to Vegas, huh? Yeah, she moved to Vegas when I was 18. <clears throat> she met my now stepdad. He's great. Um, kind of tumultuous. She she didn't date anyone my whole life. Uh, my parents divorced when I was four, so she didn't date anyone. All she did was like devote her time to like working and making sure I had like, you know, she was like my Girl Scout leader. My aunt was my other Girl Scout leader. She was like trying to be like, you know, the Super best mom. mom she could be. Yeah. Um, so when she was, when I was like 17 or 18, I think when I was 18, she uh, went out to Vegas with some friends and she met at the top of the stratosphere, my stepdad. Wow. Yeah. And she came home and was like, I met a man. And I was like, what? Like you've never, <laughs> you know, like for me, that was like a really weird adjustment. Sure. Um, and then over the course, what was of, the content? Do you know the content of the exchange? You call, I mean, I don't want to like ask you to divulge something, but I'm just curious. Of they're them the, meeting? Yeah. They're at the top of the stratosphere and it's oh, like, yeah. Hey there. Like, well, the first thing you said to her was, um, <laughs> she's going to kill me. She won't listen to this. Um, <laughs> she said, he said, they like hit it off or whatever. And he said, I just want you to know I'm married and I'm never going to leave my wife. Wow. And he, she was like, what? Whatever. This is going to turn into nothing. Right. Um, and so they, they did fall in love and they kept in touch. So his, he was separated from his wife and had been for years. Uh, she was sick. And so he never wanted to leave her because he always gave her insurance. And he just made that vow to her. He was never going to leave her. It's so weird. My parents, 
um, my stepdad and my mom are both super traditional. I mean, they grew up religious, but they're, I don't think of them as religious. My mom says she's Catholic, but I can't, I cannot point to one thing that makes her Catholic, except that she says she's Catholic. Oh, so you, you didn't go to church or anything? I, I did. She, I did go to church. I went to like catechism and stuff, but my dad, um, was not religious and did not want me to go to church. He wanted me to decide. And so when I was about to take my first communion in eighth grade, I said, I don't want to do this. Yeah. It's a oh, sign. There's the chainsaw. See, <laughs> See God is like... <laughs> I made the right decision. Yeah. Um, or not. Yeah. But yeah, so but so over the years, um, they dated my mom and my stepdad, and he's wonderful. I, I love him very much, and I'm so grateful for him because he makes her way chill. Um, but he was married, so there was all these sort of Logistics. Hurdles, yeah. For Damn. them to figure the out. But they the... figured it out, and they're married now. Hey. Yeah. And they're happy, and they have like a big ass house in las vegas and she doesn't have to work anymore and she i don't really know what she does with her day but she calls me a lot well hey she raised you she worked her ass off yep. let her go sun herself in las vegas yeah i'm happy for her that was scary yeah i don't know i think they're cutting something down up there <laughs> it's god he's back <laughs> so okay so well, you know this is a, this has been a, a winding conversation but i'm curious to know New York, surf journalism, Aspen, not liking snowboarding, diving into the mountain, um, <laughs> surfing in Montauk or yeah. teaching people how to surf in yeah. Montauk. Like, yeah. when do you start writing in earnest? Like, like writing, like, I'm going to write a book. Yeah. I, people have asked me that. I, I never, I still kind of don't think of myself as a serious writer. I mean, I know I'm saying that with a, with a published book, but, um, for me, writing is so much about like, I think I just like to make stuff. I've always been super creative. Um, I always say if, if I were better at drawing and painting, I would have gone that route. I'm just not very good at it. It was almost like cut my losses and start writing. Yeah. But I think um, graduate school really helped, right? Because I got to be with other people who were very serious about writing. And I had some great professors at the new school. Oh, right. And what prompted you to join, to apply there and go there? Um, so part of this weird winding path was out of San Diego state, a teacher said, Hey, you should apply to the MFA here at San Diego state. I was like, okay, fine. That sounds cool. I like Marquez. I want to write some short stories. So I applied, got in and the teacher at San Diego state took me aside for a semester and said, Hey, I think you should go to a better school. Like you're pretty good at this. Have you considered like applying to like Iowa or New York? And I was like, no, why would I do that? Um, and then my college boyfriend dumped me and I didn't want to be in, yeah, bastard. Um, I didn't want to be in San Diego. And so I moved to LA and dropped out of that program. And so when I got, then the New York thing happened quickly. When I got there, I thought, well, I should apply since I'm here. So I didn't, because of my commute (laughs) and I didn't really, you know, commuting in New York sucks. It's like LA. I only applied to NYU and the new school because they were closest to my office. And I went to the new school. Um, one, cause I didn't get into NYU. I got waitlisted and then the new school gave me a little bit of money. And yeah, so I, I think I, you know, I knew I wanted to try the MFA. I also stupidly thought, oh, if you get an MFA, you could be a teacher and you could get paid to be a teacher. <laughs> of course, now I know that that's not how that fucking works. But, um, so I think a lot of people have that thought. I'll just teach. I'll just teach. I'll, be I'll a get teacher. my summers off. Yeah. I don't have to be a journalist. It'll be great. All this time to write like <sighs> stupid. Uh, but I did enjoy it. And I think that's when I started thinking like, oh, I really want to write a novel. The crazy thing that happened though, was I went into that program thinking I would write a novel. And, um, 
two weeks before I was supposed to start school, my dad died suddenly. Oh God. And I was like, fuck. What happened? He, um, he was drunk and he fell and he hit his head and died. Uh, yeah. So where was, was he? In Newport beach. At home? Mm-hmm. Just slip and fell. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Super That's, shitty. That sucks. It sucks. So I had to come home and take care of all that. So I missed the first week of graduate school and I thought, should I even do this? You know? And, uh, I did. And I was working full time when I went back and doing graduate school. And, um, one of the professors I had, Jonathan D, he's great. He's a great writer. Um, his last book was called the locals, but he, he was like a Pulitzer prize finalist for, uh, the privileges. He writes very much about like New York. Anyway, he was so kind and sweet. And, um, I was like, I can't write anything. Like I'm all fucked up. Like my dad just died. I don't even know what I'm feeling. Like how am I supposed to write something? And was your dad a big drinker? Yeah. Oh, he was. Mm -hmm. Okay. I was like, I I was like, no, it wasn't like a, he just like had one random Saturday and Mm -hmm. got tanked. I mean, you know, I think about it both ways though. Right. Cause there's a lot of drinkers that make it just fine. And then there's a lot that, right. The, the probability of that happening is, is high. So I kind of go back and forth on like how accidental, right? Like some days I'm like, nah, he died cause he drank all the time. And then right. sometimes I'm like, what a shitty day. He got drunk and fell and he hit his head. So just tripped. Yeah. Cause it's both. Right. I so, guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's both. If he wasn't drinking, he yeah. probably wouldn't have fallen. Yes. Hundred percent. The fact that he fell is sort of like a fluke, right? But then also, you know, again, I, I, yeah, I go back on that, back and forth. But I mean, it doesn't matter now. Um, but yeah, so school was weird because I didn't know. Like my grief brain was just like my brain was just fried. So I, I ended up writing for my graduate thesis a novella about um, a little boy whose dad gets hit by a bus. And because I, I think I was just in my own like child brain at that time and only able to process what had happened. I think like as a kid, do you know what I mean? Like it could not, I had no perspective on this. And, um, and so I, I had said after I graduated, which I did graduate, <laughs> um, well, I never want to write about my dad. I don't want to write about like that relationship in any way. But then of course, a few years later when I kind of started piecing together things, um, I was still thinking about grief. And so a lot of the, this book is about, um, what to do with that grief and like how to become a person after that grief. You, you know? have to write about it. I, yeah, I, 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 under, I understand this like entirely. And I yeah. think I've heard people talk in similar terms many times before. Like you have a tough relationship. I mean, yeah. Was it a tough relationship growing um, up? We were, th- I think it was more tough because we really, my dad was the person in my family who really saw me and we were really emotionally close. The shitty thing was he was just an alcoholic. So he wasn't really able to be sort of a good dad in, in a lot of ways. Um, so it was tumultuous in that way that I couldn't see him all the time. And, and he often let me down, but we really did have such a strong emotional connection. So it was complicated because we really loved each other a lot, but he was also kind of a shitty person some of the time. So a a booze can mess somebody up. Right. Um, I get it. And so you have to reckon with that. If you're a writer, what totally. are you going to do? Like, be like, Oh no, that's, that's off limits. Well, I thought that I thought, <laughs> no, I'll write something in the third person about uh-huh. like, I don't know, whatever the fuck. And as I started piecing this together, um, I was like, Oh, here I'm we writing go. This book. Yeah. Um, and you know, it is fiction. So that was also, also helpful. I think if I had written a memoir in a lot of ways, that would have been harder. So the fiction kind of gave me a chance to imagine things that could have happened with him or take a memory and sort of morph it into like a good or a bad thing. Like it was really interesting to play with like my own grief in that way. Cause it's, you know, it's not technically real. So it was 
really weird. Well, but it also, I, I get that. And it gives you, um, I think it can give you a better sense of perspective on the truth of it. Um, sometimes totally about the emotional truth. Right. I, a friend said to me when I was like, I'm going out on book tour. I don't necessarily want to go up in front of strangers and just like talk about the personal parts of this book. Like I, it took me so long to craft it. Right. And like make it as an artist, like make the book as an artist. And I'd rather talk about that. And, um, she said something to me that, that was so right. She said, well, the book is emotionally true. It doesn't mean it's actually true, but I think that's true for any book, whether you have literal, memories or something in a book or literal things that have happened in your life. But I think when you're writing a book, like everything is emotionally true because it's just you, you're every character, you're every part of it. All the questions I'm asking in this book are questions I have about life in different versions of people here through character, through, you know, plot, whatever voice, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that's a, a good way of saying it, that like the book for me is very emotionally true, but I think any book I write will be emotionally true. Well, you hope. And yeah. did you ever draft a version of it or did you, um, make attempts to draft it in a way that was more memoir? Never. Did you ever, you never wanted, you never did direct line. You never were like, I'm going to try to render this just as. No, Mm-mm. I think, um, I think as I, so I, the, the book is written in a few different timelines. So there's, um, four days before a wedding with kind of a, an estranged neurotic mother there's um, an entire childhood with an alcoholic father, and then there's 10 years into a marriage. And so when I was sort of constructing it, um, I was so interested, probably with all the Faulkner stuff like that too, is I was so interested in the actual um, puzzle of the book and the storytelling element in terms of like form um, that memoir just never made sense because that would have had to have been chronological and... Not necessarily. Yeah, But I think it also felt like journalism, right? Where you have to be so factual and you have to. And for me, I don't, I still don't really know all the facts. Like I I feel like I was just saying, I I fluctuate even on like what his death means in terms of like literally how he died. Like some days, right. Depending on my grief or where I'm at, I'm like, what a shitty accident, you know? So, and so I just, I can, I mean, I don't mean to get morbid, but it's like he was at home and he just tripped and fell, hit the floor or did he like fall down stairs or no, no, he, um, he probably passed out. He had fallen before. So also, right. If you've been drinking and you've fallen many times in your life, I don't know how many, your, your brain is a lot softer back there. You're right. So there's that. Um, no, he, um, I think he probably got up around 5am to take a piss. He was wasted and it looked like he either tripped over the side table. It was probably dark. Um, or he passed out like, or he just, you know, and he, anyway, he fell backwards. So he hit the back of his head, knocked him out, knocked him out. He probably didn't feel anything. And then, and then he died. But, you know, I had to go back to California and go to his place and, and, you know, his place was tidy and clean. Um, that's good. His plants were watered. He had been watching my DVD copy with my name on it of the big Lebowski the night before, like, <laughs> you know, things were, it was, it was, it was an accident. He did not intend to, you know, fucking fall to his death or anything like that. Right. So yeah, it's an interesting, it is scary. And I think, I think too, whenever I talk about this, it's so scary, like, you know, driving in a car, right? Like you just, I don't know who knows, like that seems so silly to fall down, but Hey, <laughs> I think about this all the time yeah. living in Los Angeles. Like, yeah, totally. People are like, oh my God, I'm terrified of flying. I'm like, you should be terrified of driving. Why are people afraid of flying? That really, the odds of dying in a plane crash are like, yeah, really? Where's the chainsaw? Yeah. <laughs> um, but just you're yeah. encased in like a steel box going like really fast. But where is it going? I mean, planes don't fall out of the sky. 
What? Come on. They Let's... really don't. We don't have to know. They don't fall out of the sky. <laughs> Sometimes they do. But, you know, I just I just think that, like, we also need to pay attention to how... Like, and, you're, and you're driving fast, and you're, like, mm. two feet away from another car mm-hmm. that's driving fast right the next to you. The social contract of And you're looking at your phone. You're like, yeah. oh, whatever. I'll text yeah. while I'm... You know, it's mm-hmm. nuts. Driving, to me, is way more alarming, especially here in Los Angeles, than flying. Yeah. I see it all the time. I just see people... You just see people who don't look right in the head behind the wheel. <laughs> just like totally. Fly, There's a lot of those people. Fly, flying around yes. Los Angeles. Like, and there's no way the cops could possibly manage. I don't even think they care. They, yeah, the number of people who are intoxicated driving around Los Angeles on any given evening mm-hmm. or day. Well, a good sign, my mom taught me this, and it's been true, is people driving slow. Is usually um, a thing that... I feel like, too, I saw this. We had, like, a seminar in college where, like, cops came to talk to us. Maybe this was one of our Tijuana trips or something. But um, when people are driving slow on the freeway, specifically the freeway, or, like, they're just... Because your motor skills are slower, that's always a good sign to, like, get the fuck away from someone. Oh, really? Yeah. So that makes sense. People are always afraid of fast drivers, but those people usually aren't drunk. They're just assholes. Or they're it's coked this, up. Or yeah. <laughs> I trust someone on coke way more than I would yeah, exactly. in a car. Yeah, exactly. I, 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 I want my Uber driver yeah. on amphetamines. <laughs> totally. 100%. It's fine with me. <laughs> Stay awake. Don't be drunk. I mean, I don't know. There's so let that. me ask you this. Like you, like the alcoholism, it runs in families. Like mm-hmm. one, one of my dear friends uh, OD'd and lost his life. Mm. And it's like, you know, addiction is a mm-hmm. genetic, not always, I guess. It's sort of mysterious to me, but it does seem to move through families. Yes. And it hits certain people in the family and yeah. it misses others. Yeah. It seems like it missed you. Yeah. I'm really lucky. Yeah. Um, also, I grew up with my mom and she was really, my mom didn't know what no one in her family was an alcoholic. So here they are down the block, a family of alcoholics. And she didn't understand this. So when she married my dad, I think she really thought they were just partying and they met in high school. So I think she just thought they were... Right. You know, when they had a kid or got married and settled down. And so she started to settle down and she didn't, you know, want to do cocaine and drink all weekend anymore. And my dad really did <laughs> did and could not stop like right. quite physically. So yeah. um, she was really good about scaring the shit out of me in a lot of ways. Like she would tell me, especially in high school, I did drink a lot in high school. I definitely think I dabbled in binge drinking, but I was always really aware because she was always like, if you drink... You are 100% going to be an alcoholic. I mean, she didn't really know what she was saying, but she scared the shit out of me. Well, she was scared. She was scared to Mm -hmm. death herself. I mean, I would, I totally would be as a parent. I had a fake ID in community college. um, And my mom who like moved away and, you know, we had this weird relationship in my, you know, teens and twenties. She came home. I hadn't seen her in like a while. You know, I don't even know if we were speaking. We went to lunch together. She was living out in Vegas or something. Yeah. I went to the bathroom at lunch and she... Um, apparently stole my fake ID out of my wallet because my aunts all ratted me out that I was going to bars and I had this fake ID. Damn, so that, that big extended back, family. Yeah, that big extended she family. She flew back to Vegas and then that night I went to go out. I couldn't find it and I put it together and called her and freaked out. And that's, that's a big deal. Yeah, I think she gave it back eventually. <laughs> yeah, right. I think I convinced her, but <laughs> yeah, she really scared me about it. And uh, so I've always, that's something I always think about, you know. And I, I've been really good about like not doing drugs even because I feel like I might like, I, I smoked cigarettes for 10 years. Yeah. So I know that I could probably very easily dip into these things and, and maybe not get out, you know? Right. So you got to be careful. Yeah. I have I to think be anybody's really got to, anybody's got to be careful. For sure. Especially with these days when it comes to like, 
well, of course, cigarettes, but when it comes to like alcohol, but especially yeah. when it comes to like opiates and yeah. shit. Well, that's the worst one now, right? Like that's <sighs> the thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, my dad, my dad did a lot of pills too. He, he, um, opiates ex- uh, specifically, he had a lot of like surfing injuries and injuries, right? Was injuries. he a surfer? Yeah. Yeah. Just wasted on the way. <laughs> what yeah. did he do? And he was able to sustain some kind of career, or was it? I mean, um, for the most part, he he was pretty functioning alcoholic, really, for a long time. And he he would try to get sober. I think some of the times he would try to get my mom back. He'd try to get sober, and it would never stick. Then, of course, he'd go back on a bender. It was like this sort of cycle. And then, um, I think when I was in like high school was when things kind of started to shift, where he got on disability. Oh which, you know, you put anybody on disability, they're probably never going to go back to work. And for him, he didn't, but he worked, um, yeah, he worked in like it stuff for a long time and worked his way up and he worked for like, um, big grocery store chains and like, yeah, he always had a job for the most part. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, when I got to high school was when it was kind of like, okay, you're probably never going back to work and you're just going to sell weed and maybe Coke and your pills. So, well, yeah, it's a, it's like you, you, you know, you can, a lot of times people who, you know, struggle, like they, they can be functioning. Yeah. He was functioning. It's like, not like you're just like, totally. you know, it's not like you're just like wasted. Well, and, like his apartment, right? Like his plants were watered. I mean, the dude was functioning as shit. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a big part of it. And it's, I think that's why it's hard to understand addiction and people because there's so many sort of, you know, people, when you say addict, people have this stereotype in their mind of like a person shooting up on the street and like, you know, homeless. which does happen. Absolutely. Yeah. But, um, that's like kind of, a, I think a rare case in addiction. I think a lot of addiction is sort of a quiet thing you struggle with and it feels shameful. And you're doing it alone. Yeah. hundred percent. Did he have any, um, like difficult childhood experiences or yeah, his dad was abusive, oh, okay. which I think really shaped a lot of his, which is so crazy that I didn't learn about that till really as an adult, because I was so close with my grandfather. So it's so strange to sort of learn about these like family things, you know, right. Well, um, it's all families are complicated. Yeah. And they all, and, and my dad has a twin brother and they all have like different versions of this too. Right. Of like what has happened and hasn't happened. I mean, I feel that way about my own life and you know, anyone I talk to, I mean, that's just, how it works. Like, I think that's partly why for me making art makes sense. It's like, you know, you're always trying to like piece together thing. I mean, I don't think you, you, you ever do, but well, the, yeah. What did it, uh, making this book do to your grief? Like, did you, you know, obviously yeah. you're never going to like put a lid on it. Yeah. Um, you, there's no, no such thing as closure really, but right. like, do you have like any more peace than you previously did? Did it give you some kind of insight or like, cause I, I feel like, it had to have. You wrestled yeah. with it in a deep way in writing this book. It had to have had some kind of positive benefit. I think um, it reminded me that I think I had shoved away for a long time. <clears throat> it's been it'll be ten years for me in August, so I'm I'm on like kind of a long time out, right? Um, I think I really did think you could put a lid on grief. I thought, even though I wrote a book completely opposite of that, <laughs> but I really thought. Um, you know, if you, if you worked really hard, like this kind of what I always think about my life, like, well, if I just do all the right things or I work really hard or I really put in more work than anybody else, like I can succeed at whatever the thing is. And I sort of made grief that way and succeeding at grief. Yeah, totally. I thought I could do it. And and now I thought, well, if enough time passes, I just won't have grief anymore. Right. Like that's just math. (laughs) I'm bad at math. Um, so I think what the book did was really made me think about him as a person which was cathartic, right? Thinking about how much he must have struggled and how much he loved me, but, and didn't want to be an alcoholic 
right? Um, and so I think that now, especially that the book is out and talking about him again too, I think in a happy way and sad way, like it's really interesting to miss him. 10 years later, I thought I could have just, you know, it would just be a memory I had and it was just like a part of my brain and I would be on to new things. But um, now I just miss him in a totally new way and it's kind of beautiful and sad. But um, I've noticed that on like book tour, I just want to call him. Like I was just in Phoenix and Cactus League's about to start and all this baseball stuff and we love baseball. And I, I almost like almost picked up my phone 10 years later to call his number and be like, oh my God, you know, I just talked to this guy who's going to this game and here's who's coming. The Dodgers are coming on this, you know, and like, you know, and I was like, oh, this is so crazy how, um, I think it's cathartic in some ways to think of him as a person, but also then you, you know, I miss him as a person. Like that was my person. So it's interesting to me. I think it's, it was more of a lesson in grief of you can't master this. Like you just said, you can't put a lid on it. Like it's your life. It's, it's, it's not something that just goes away. And I almost think the more time that passes, certain parts of it feel bigger, Hmm. not in a sad way, but like some happy memories feel bigger. Um, I, do hope I never go back to the anger part of it, but I'm not sure, right? Like, who knows? You had an intense period of anger? I don't know if it was intense, but there was a time where um, I, I think, right, as humans, we're trying to just rationalize everything, or at least I am all the time. And when he died, I moved back to New York. I was going to school. I, I ended up meeting my husband. Like, I was just, okay, do the right things, keep going. But I think later came when I was really pissed, like, you know, which is actually totally normal to feel that way. I'm surprised it took me so long to feel that way, but yeah. Like what if he had gotten sober? Right. You know, it's, it's, it made me angry that, um, not that he couldn't do it, but that he didn't really try to do it in a way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you never know. I don't know. I don't know the details or how many times he went into meetings or whatever it would be. He never went to a meeting. Oh, he didn't? No. Okay. (laughs) Well, I remember I had a buddy, uh, commit suicide. Mm when I was in college and it was like really devastating. And I remember yeah. after, you know, like you read the literature or people are talking at you and they're like, you know, it's natural to feel angry. I never felt angry. Mm. I don't I know. I think it just depends. Am I burying it? I'm still not angry. I just feel like he was, had a mental illness that was undiagnosed and was doing too many drugs. Yeah. Like college in, in the ways of college kids. Yeah. But it was I, have, a, I have a friend's very similar story and I, I didn't feel angry about that. Yeah. I understood. I think he, like he had to do that. I hate to say it like that, but also I think it depends on the relationship, Yeah, right? A friendship is very different than like if you're a parent and your child, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think there's like varying levels to grief in a lot of ways. And like, it's just, you know, it's fluid and it's fluid too. I mean, I felt very deeply sad, like maybe the saddest I've ever been. Yeah. And I also felt scared Yeah, because I was like, Oh shit. I was like 20. And I was like, this is possible. Yeah. You know, that was a, it was a mind fuck. Yeah. But I think like what you're talking about with your dad and the way things like 10 years later, Mm -hmm. something's changed, something stay the same. But I think the, the deeper point is just that, um, nothing ever stays the same. Everything's always changing and your, your relationship to your grief is fluid. Absolutely. And I honestly think that was one of the big questions I was asking when I was writing this book. I come to writing any project or making anything with, with big questions. And with this specifically, that was what I was asking. Like, can I achieve like an end to grief? And in the book, my answer was no, right? Like it's fluid. It's sort of ebbing and flowing constantly. Um, I don't know if I really believed that, but that was in terms of writing it that made sense. And now I'm like, oh yeah, I was super right. My subconscious was telling me the right thing that it's 
I think it'll change my whole life. And and also as you keep going, grief changes because you keep losing people. Right. So your perspective fucking changes. So much to look forward to. You just keep, lo- you know, every few years I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe, you know, and some of them are so severe and some of them are, you know, a friend of a friend, you know, whatever the thing is. But I think now having lost even more people and close people, I'm just like, oh man, this, this changes my perspective on, on grief altogether. It's a good thing to, I think, I think it's a good thing to, uh, meditate on, you know, loss and grief because yeah. it's coming. And if you don't yeah, do any kind of preparation, I think that's kind of foolish. I'm not suggesting you have to like wear all black and like <laughs> be like, you know, like Beetlejuice. Yeah. But I mean, it's something that's worth, it's a reality that we should probably confront. Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, I think so many people are afraid of it. I, I'm not afraid of it. I just, I think my first big loss happened when I was like 18. And then I had a few in between lost my dad at 26. And then, um, what happened at 18? My grandmother died. Oh, my mom's mom, who I was super close with. She was only in her seventies. She just got pancreatic cancer and up and died. Right. This guy's cutting down a tree. I can see out the skylight. Yeah. So all my ghosts are here. <laughs> it's all happening. So what, uh, you finished this book and then you took it out to, you were like, I want to publish this. Yeah. Obviously you were, you know, you were an MFA or yeah. you wanted to go out and get it published. I didn't write an MFA. I wrote it after, but yeah. Okay. And yeah. so talk about the process of getting it into print. Yeah. Um, it's really fucking long. Uh, I, kept the book to myself. I had other agents because of journalism stuff hit me up and say like, Oh, I want to represent you or like, what are you working on for a few years? And, um, I never wanted to share it with anyone. Cause I wanted, I knew the book, especially within, with its structure, it is a little bit not conventional perhaps. And I wanted to keep that as much as possible. So I wanted to find an agent who would respect that in the book. So I, I cold called. So when the book was done, I think it was like 2017 ish. I sent it out to like a whole bunch of agents because I assumed none of them would get back to me, which was the wrong thing to do because a lot of them got back to me and then I started losing track of like, oh shit, like, <laughs> why did it's I do good, that? That's a high class problem. Right, for sure. Um, and then I ended up really vibing with one agent who I signed with and she just really understood the structure and it felt like, you know, it's a weird thing like dating, right, with the agent thing because... Some people get it and you're just like, oh, this isn't a good... Ma-. And they can feel it too, right? It might it's not like, be... It's the- like, uh, what's that show you were watching? Yeah, Love is Blind. Love is Blind. Totally. 100%. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you have these kind of conversations. So I ended up signing with her. We did one edit together and then she sold it. Um, and so... And how did you find out that news? I was teaching a class at Mount St. Mary's up in Brentwood. And my phone kept ringing. And like a jerk, I had it on like during class, like cool. And, um, wait, you were a teacher. Yeah. I adjunct sometimes for oh, okay. very small amounts of money. Right. Um, I've done that. that semester I was teaching like full time up there <laughs> and making no money. I do love teaching, but no money. Um, anyway, so she called to tell me that we got, they wanted to do a preempt. And so I sold it to Algonquin books to Betsy Glick over there. And I think, um, from start to finish, it was two years before it came out. Algonquin's wonderful because they are sort of a mid-sized publisher. So you really get a lot, like this is why I got a tour and you get like a lot of attention when your book comes out from the publisher. Um, So you have to kind of get in line, you know what I mean? So there's a longer kind of wait period for me. And I think Betsy and I did 
Um, you know, obviously a lot of edits for clarity and, um, things like that. But the big edit we did was I had one more timeline in the book and we all decided it was just too much. So instead of rewriting it, I ended up actually just taking it out. So I had a really lucky edit experience because, you know, I've heard some people that have rewritten the book for like a year, like completely rewritten it. Uh, and I didn't really have to do that. So the, the way the book is now is mostly sort of As my original vision. Yeah. And, so and did you have anybody prior to, to, um, selling it that helped you revise it or edit it? Or was it just all you? Um, I was really weird about sharing it. <laughs> I can imagine that though. I think, you know, I, you get to a point in your work, I think where other people's opinions just don't matter, which is not in like a mean way, but like, if you're not, I think for me, I have to feel like I'm confident in what every word is on the page. And if I'm, if I'm asking other people what should be on the page, then maybe I'm not writing the, the right thing. Um, but I do have um, a really good friend from New York. She's a poet, Vanessa Gab. She's a wonderful poet. And we've been friends for years. And so we read each other's work. So she had seen versions of it. And I think it makes sense and helps that she's a poet to look at this work and sort of give some feedback. And Wait, why? Because she's a poet? Just because I she's... I think on a language level, it's a different kind of edit and it's a different kind of thought process than writing a novel. Just like line by line. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, and she's really good at sort of um, finding sort of like, I think as we're friends too, like, hey, this is maybe what you're really writing about, not this. And she knows my life too, so it was kind of... But she was really the only person that had like actually looked, looked at it... Um, yeah. And then I just did the weird cold call thing. I don't know if that was maybe the, the right way to go, but I mean, I guess it worked out. Hey, so. it worked out. It was the right way to <laughs> <Whatever>. go. Whatever. <laughs> um, so family, family members read it. Your mom mm -hmm. obviously read it. She must be proud of you. She is proud of me. I wasn't sure how she was going to feel about this, but the thing about my mom is, you know, she knows that the, the book is very much focused on a, a little girl growing up physically with her father, which obviously I didn't really do. Um, so my mom really knew, I think, I think she knows the emotional truths in there and other people in my family have sort of spotted some very similar things, but you know, my mom really understands that it's fiction. An interesting thing about my mom too, is she's dyslexic. So, um, she doesn't, she doesn't really read, read books. Um, and so she, she can read, um, but it was kind of a weird, beautiful experience that she spent a lot of time, like really trying to understand and read this book. And, um, she says she's, you know, read it a few times. So yeah, she's really proud. She sometimes refers to herself as the mother, like in a scene, she'll be like, you know, the scene when I'm blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, <laughs> Oh my God. Um, but it's kind of sweet. And in a way I think it's kind of brought us together. Um, and I'm happy that she, um, yeah, she's just proud. I don't, I don't really know their, my family's opinion opinions, you know, they've been pretty like, Hey, way to go. You did this thing. So it's been okay so far. So they're not like dropping Amazon reviews. Like what the fuck? Three stars? Like, we... no, I did have one person though. I saw on Goodreads, um, told me like it was a friend of a friend or something weird like that. They like hit me up on Instagram, like DM was like, Oh my God, I loved your book so much. I was like, wow, it's really nice. Thanks. But then because I guess on Goodreads, you can see who you're friends with. So she probably didn't know I could see. She only gave me three stars on Goodreads. And I was like, yo, if like, you shouldn't have even read the, even if you haven't read the book, give me five stars on Goodreads. You right. know what I mean? Like we know each other. It's like a favor. Right. I was like, burn. How, I can totally see like your three stars. Yeah. So it was really funny. Damn. Yeah. But I think sometimes people <laughs> take their like Goodreads and Amazon, like they take it seriously. 
like, well, this like is a, a good person book. who would never give a five star to anything, right? Or it's like yeah. they'll give a five star to like Love in the Time of Cholera. Yes, and that's it. And that's it. Right. And it's like, well, this is her first right. book. I mean, she's got a lot of promise. Yeah. You know? She'll do better when she gets older and experiences <laughs> life more. I'm like, you know how many times I've heard that? I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah, I, I actually love reading the Goodreads reviews. Someone referred to my book as suffering porn. That's been my favorite. I'm like, welcome to my life, bitch. It is suffering porn. Um, but no, I, I, I know a lot of people hate reading the Goodread reviews and stuff, but I find them in the way I love reality TV and like I feel like a voyeur sometimes. Like I'm totally fascinated by people's opinions. And, and it doesn't hurt you if they... No. Yeah. Not yet. I can stay pretty detached. I think, I mean, yeah, I, me I, too. <laughs> just, uh, I mean, I don't know. Somebody says something really, I think if somebody says something that's like really negative and I feel like it's true, mm-hmm. then I can maybe feel like a wince, like an internal wince, like, Ooh, they're right. But I often think my critics are right. I'm not like indignant, like, no, mm-hmm. fuck them. I'm always like, well, maybe they got a point. There was, I think it was, I think I did read all my reviews, like the real reviews. Um, but it was also in such a weird time cause the book had just come out, you know, when you get the reviews and I think it was in the LA times, I don't know, but anyway, they've all been really good reviews. I'm really thankful, but you know, of course, criticism comes with criticism. So one of the things was about my like sort of purpley prose, right? Sort of like lyrical annoyingness. And I feel that way about my writing all the time. So when I saw it in print, I was like, fuck. Yeah, yeah, I totally yeah. get that. Like, yeah. I wasn't even mad. I was like, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me more. Like, do you know what I mean? It was yeah. like, you know, and like, um, some of my friends were like, could you believe they said that? And I was like, well, did you read it? Like, <laughs> it's like totally my style. It like annoys me sometimes, you know? So, right, right. I, yeah, I think so far I, um, I don't feel bad about, again, I did get really nice reviews. So that maybe I, I sound like an asshole saying this, but so far it's been pretty okay. You the, know? Uh, I saw, I, I was talking to a literary agent not on um, this show, but just in my social life, I was talking to a lit agent and uh, he was telling me that like he had earlier in his career rejected a manuscript by a now very Mm well-known, like Mm award-winning, you know, like celebrated author. Mm -hmm. And like, it was like years later, he was at a social function and this author like embarrassed him, like remember, no way. Like, like quoted the rejection letter to his face in Woof. front of people. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, God damn, I don't think like, maybe that's what like you have to burn like yeah. that. Do I, I don't have that. I think I would just, be like, I don't oh, either. Hey, can you imagine being no. like, I, I and I got, th- I mean, I have those, right. I, mean, I have been rejected many times. And like, by the way, that book that was rejected, uh-huh. got rejected everywhere. It didn't get yeah. published. So it was oh. like, it was like, maybe it wasn't any good. Like, and you're still yeah, pissed I, off about it? I feel it? like I go into things thinking my shit's bad. Like, even when I did the cold calling, I was under no impression that I had, like, some pot of gold there. Do you know what I mean? Like, I still, still, I mean, I just published it, but I, I feel, like, still, like, hilariously lucky. I'm like, oh, I can't believe I've made it this far. Like, Suckers. fooled you. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I can't think about it the other way. And there are, there are so many people. That's probably why I hate Twitter, but. There's so many people that are constantly complaining about those things. And I, for me to survive personally, I just have to like move the fuck on from those and keep going. Cause like, I can't live in a world where I'm mad about like the reviews and re- rejections, you know? Right. Yeah. So are you uh, going to write another book? Yeah. What are you going to write? Um, I'm tinkering now. I, I think though, for me, I, 
am not just interested in writing books. I think I, um, now that I sort of did the novel, I want to play around with other things. So I, I think my white whale would be like a very spectacularly sad Broadway play. I would like to play. Yeah. I would like to do some like TV movie stuff. Um, so the novel is something I'm just kind of in the big question phase right now. And, um, I have like a hundred pages of like notes and sentences and ideas and these big questions. But one of the questions I'm really thinking about, and I imagine that's what this book will really be is about motherhood. Am I going to be a mother? Do I want to be a mother? Um, how was I mothered? I had all these mother figures in my life. Um, and in talking to just all my friends now are becoming parents and, um, watching my friends become mothers has just been this really kind of surreal experience to watch them all do this. And so I think that's something I'm thinking about a lot. And so it's kind of, kind of shaping out to be maybe about motherhood. And then, um, you know, creatures is so much about like nature and the ocean. And I spent a lot of time researching like whales and just watched a million Jacques Cousteau YouTube videos. And, um, I'm now on a big geology kick. So I'm reading a lot of like John McPhee. And I think I'm asking a lot of for myself questions about like the origin of life, which falls right into motherhood and strangely geology. So um, I don't know, some novel about motherhood and geology. And it's very, no pun intended, infant stage here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a good summary. (laughs) Uh, Well, it's been great to meet you. Yes. Thank you for coming over to talk to me. Congratulations on uh, all of your success and good luck. Um, you know, figuring out motherhood. <laughs> yeah, I'll let you know. Maybe I could take someone to Disneyland, someone else's kid. All right. <laughs> nice talking to you. <laughs> Thank you. All right, everybody. There you go. That is Chrissy Van Meter. Her debut novel is called Creatures, and it is out there now from Algonquin Books. You can find Chrissy online at chrissyvanmeter.com. You can follow her on Twitter at Chrissy Van Meter. She's on Instagram, too. The book, one more time, is called Creatures. It's a debut novel. Go get it right now. Thanks to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music there at the top of the interview. If you would like to support this show, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Tip your server. If you want to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. And uh, don't forget that this, this program has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Go get the app. Be sure to check out Tell Me About Your Father the new podcast series the full season is up right now tell me about your father i'm going to try to do a sunday episode again this week i'm going to try to do as many sunday episodes as i can while this pandemic is uh, messing with everybody i figure you guys you guys could use something to do right so uh i'm not 100% promising, but I'm going to try to get a a Sunday episode up. My conversation with Megan Boyle, author of Live Blog. And uh, she's live blogging again as we speak. She's probably actually live blogging right now. 
So stay tuned for that, hopefully. And then uh, next Wednesday, who do I got for you? I think I have Amanda Goldblatt. Yeah, Amanda Goldblatt next Wednesday. Another good one. All right, stay safe.